Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. How can that help us with understanding emotional intelligence? The teaching on the five phases and emotional intelligence, uh, if you actually study Chinese medicine to become a Chinese doctor, has more to do with instinctual needs in the sense that every one of those emotions we have are actually an emotional, psychological, and spiritual need to grow. Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, Episode 5. Today's topic, Emotional Intelligence and Traditional Chinese Medicine. My name is Alex Kruger, and I am joined today with Dr. Michael Smith. Welcome to the show. How are you today, Mike? I'm doing great. I'm getting all ready for uh, winter and uh, the next potential lockdown because of the pandemic. So uh, exciting times and challenging times, and it's... Uh, in, in a way, a really great way to kind of like lean our, our audience into the episode because today's episode is going to be about things that are challenging. And there are a lot of people who are not feeling great about having to restrict their living out there. So it's it can be tough. You can feel cooped up. So hopefully we can help people find a better way to deal with that. And I think one of the ways that we get over... I guess the depression or anxiety that comes with some of these challenges would be just a little more awareness about where that comes from, how, where, how you feel about that. So today's episode is about emotional intelligence. Uh, where would you like to start, Michael? Uh, I think the easiest place to start with this kind of a subject is to be very subjective and, and very willing to, uh, I guess, be a bit vulnerable. So if you don't mind being my uh, proverbial lab rat, Alex, how would you define emotional intelligence? Well, I suppose it's more than just knowing what you're feeling, but also why. And being able to, I guess, understand that about other people while they're going through some ranges of feelings as well. Or try to. Yeah, I mean, that that's probably the, the you know, working definition for most people. Uh, I'll give a more technical definition in a bit. Um, but I would encourage everyone who's thinking about that question, you know, what is emotional intelligence? It's very subjective. It's unique to each of us in a way. And I think more than anything, it's really an invitation to one, I guess, accept how important our emotions are, you know, as a source of guidance, as a source of information, as an aspect of intuition. Um, and it's a, it's a massive part of our actual life. Uh, and especially in the sense of our sensual life. And, you, you know, you say the word sensual and everyone starts thinking about uh, sexuality or, you know, the things we do that have to do with physical interactions. And that's true as well. 
But if you think about what makes that part of our sensual life sensual, you know, in the sense of physical touch, it's just as much, if not more, a sensual experience because of how much meaning and transformation and woohoo that we feel, you know, on the level of emotion and personal meaning. Uh, people need connection on a lot of levels, and we need that because that's really the way that we learn to reflect on who we are and and how to become really who we want to become next. And if you're not really willing to feel how you feel, communicate how you feel, communicate what you need to feel how you need to feel, then in a way, from a Chinese medicine point of view, you're you're kind of in a kind of energetic stagnation. And we talked last time about the way of enough and all the different ways that we connect to the world and get our needs met and, and share with people and um, become whole people in a subtle way. And so much of that is being willing to risk a bit about who we are to find out who we're going to become. And most of that work really happens by giving ourselves permission to feel how we feel and to be a bit wise about maybe to change on, change some things about you know what we believe and how we react so that we can choose more consciously how to feel and obviously how to affect other people and how they feel. That's a much more elaborate definition, and I like it. It's a lot more <laughs> beautiful, too. Well, I think that's more the invitation, <laughs> the definition I'll, I'll share in a minute, but uh, I want to give people uh, something tangible to play with. So uh, an easy way to get this kind of going for, for you know how we think about this is, if you don't mind, Alex, just pick an emotion that you find particularly challenging. I don't need to tell the people very much about it. Just sort of throw out the emotion that you would say is really like, eh, the one that you you find you know probably least favorite would be just that feeling of overwhelmed when you have so many things to do that you, you don't even know where to start and uh you just feel like you're just facing a wall like whatever okay whichever emotion that would be maybe that's more of a feeling yeah so uh, <laughs> to, to be a little bit technical to be overwhelmed is kind of a concept about you know how how our world is working but usually the feeling over of overwhelmed is somewhere between feeling really anxious and or really depressed because the overwhelm is because we don't feel like we're you know able to to like stay focused and that that makes us feel anxious or we don't really feel like we deserve the outcome or we're really having a hard time making decisions so we focus on the depression so do you want to pick kind of one more like a little bit more anxious a little bit more depressed okay. maybe let's go with the uh, depressed side let's say you're bummed out that's, okay. that's not a good time <laughs> so let's take a moment and you know for all of us listening and watching feel into that feeling of uh, overwhelmed and perhaps a, a, a lack of self-confidence maybe not in the complete way of your life but right now because you're feeling overwhelmed Let's ask ourselves to feel into that feeling and say, what just happened to my connection to my instincts? Right? I'm perceiving the world as challenging. I don't really feel for whatever reason that I'm, you know, enough for the challenge or the challenge is too much for me because that overwhelm. So the first thing that when we get into emotional intelligence is what is the instinctual experience and why aren't we actually feeling instinctually connected? Right? And that's not good or bad, right or wrong. We don't want to add shame to the feeling of overwhelmed here. We just want to be like, okay, I'm not tapped into myself instinctually because I'm, I'm living with a belief that I can't meet this challenge. Right? So maybe we're just instinctually tired. 
Or maybe we've had previous experiences that make us feel like we don't want to risk our instinctual self because we're, we're afraid of some kind of failure. You know, and those are all stories, but the most important thing is to feel into where did my instincts go and how do my instincts um, potentially help me with this feeling. And then there's this other aspect, which we think of as kind of the social, kind of personal belonging intuition part of our life, uh, which has the most to do with our emotional well-being. And if I think of overwhelm and feeling a bit bummed out, and I, I have to just ask myself, well, where did my intuition go? Or what is my intuition telling me? Because my intuition may be telling me this isn't really what I want to do. Maybe this doesn't really mean a lot to me. Maybe I'm just trying to do things for other people and I'm kind of tired of performing for other people. Because otherwise I'd probably feel way more motivated to get this done. So maybe there's something in there to help me understand, you know, why this feeling isn't, uh, why this feeling is happening. So first thing, again, check in with my instinct. Second thing, check in with that sense of kind of visceral being, you know, that sense of intuition and be like, okay, do I really want to be doing this? And if I do, maybe I should drop more into that intuitional space and see if I can come up with another way to relate to this. Or maybe even, you know, as the saying goes, invent the better mousetrap to face this challenge and, and, and to get through this process, um, you know, in a, in a more personal and in-depth way because I'm being more intuitive about it. And then there's this other part of the, you know, of us human beings we call our existential life, you know, and that's kind of like meaning and philosophy and truth. And if I'm feeling overwhelmed, which happens, and I'm feeling kind of bummed out, which happens, and I think of what's going on existentially, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm not attending or attached to any sense of meaning here. And I don't mean attached in some dysfunctional kind of gripping uh, fear-based way. It's more like a sense of really deep self-trust and motivation. You know, because if I'm kind of like burned out on this thing, it's like, yeah, well, existentially, I'm really not that interested in, in the result anyway. Or maybe on a certain level, I'm kind of existentially burned out on just feeling burned out. And the, the meaning I'm actually feeling is, why do I keep getting into situations that feel overwhelming? <laughs> So maybe I should step back from the situation and deal with that deeper truth. Maybe I just keep re recreating a kind of like, like many people keep choosing the same partner in, in a dysfunctional relation, uh, dysfunctional relationship pattern because it's familiar. Maybe it's the day I finally understand that I have to stop getting myself into these weird commitments that I really don't want because I'm kind of addicted to this sense of impending failure. I mean, this can go deep, Alex, this is pretty crazy. <laughs> But just letting you know, like that that's the first thing that, that we, you know, we're always kind of encouraged to do in Taoist practice is look at the San Tao, the threefold path. And feel into what we call Di Tao, the, the way of uh, kind of the animal life, the instinctual life. You know, and then we think of Ren Dao, we'll talk more about later, the way of beings, the way of being a social person, the way our intuition works. And then we always go to Tian uh, Dao, uh, the way of the sky, our existential life. So that, that's sort of the Taoist way. We're going to go more into the Chinese medicine way uh, in this uh, podcast, but that's my, my first uh, recommendation for anyone is what's going on instinctually, what's going on intuitively, you know, and socially in, in that way, what's really happening existentially in, in the sense of truth. And most of us can kind of unravel a, a lot of things just doing that. 
And it sounds like that's something you would want to do more regularly throughout your day. Just set aside a couple minutes here and there, sort of check in, maybe meditate and take a look at these things while you're sitting, looking for good alignment and breathing. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I also, when it comes to emotional intelligence, one of the most powerful things people can do is journaling. Why is that? Well, I mean, if intelligence has to do with kind of bringing logic and order and facts and history and experience and maybe um, to some degree what our future plans are, it, it's to try and use that kind of left brain to understand your right brain. So journaling is a way to kind of put a lot of feelings into different kinds of order with a lot of different adjectives and things like that. So it's a, a fairly intuitive way to do what you're describing is to bring some self-awareness into the experience, but also to use the mind and to use language to put some feelings in order, you know, and, and to kind of scale the situation a little bit. That sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, and I guess, I guess I'm, I'm used to talking to people, you know, from a clinical point of view that maybe have PTSD. Uh, many of my patients do. People with addiction, many of my patients, you know, face that challenge in, in you know, multiple ways. So it really is that reunion of the left and right brain that, that gives us a kind of confidence, but also uh, the vulnerability and a different kind of confidence to, to really feel into what's going on instead of just make our feelings go away. Because how many people stuff their feelings with food or with the internet or with the TV set or with, I mean, I know people who just stuff their feelings with meditation because they'd rather pretend that they can, you know, be in silence when their emotions are running around inside like howling animals. You know, we're, we're all doing our, our, our best in a way, but, you know, to go deeper in this, it's kind of high risk. Because you're risking the truth and you're risking feeling exactly how much you actually feel, which you're feeling anyway, but a lot of us are good at, at, at avoiding that, <laughs> especially with addiction, right? Escapism. And well, control kind of has a lot of flavors. <clears throat> right. I feel like most people have at least one or two things, even if it's, uh, even if it's a hook on coffee or something, you know, so... Yeah, well, like I said, control has a lot of flavors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be a mocha. You could have espresso in it. I mean, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, bring bring on the the mocha with real chocolate and you know, yummy. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Um, and I did want to make sure I, I uh, express the technical description of emotional intelligence, just because. Um, uh, I don't want to miss that. So technically, emotional intelligence is a process of self-regulation. It requires self-awareness, emotional reflection, awareness of your triggers, and also an awareness if you need some kind of recapitulation for trauma, which is why you have these triggers. Recapitulation for trauma means going back and doing the work um, around past events and experiences so that they become conscious instead of just an unconscious driver. So emotional intelligence technically is actually a sequence of going through self-regulation until you have enough regulation to commit to the risk of real self-awareness and then going deep into emotional reflection, which is, you know, kind of like chasing cats around and, you know, get them to do what you're trying to tell them to do. <laughs> and that's usually driven by our triggers. So we have to get really clear on what those triggers are. And those triggers usually exist because of something that's happened in the past. So that, that's basically the sequence of emotional intelligence from a modern psychological point of view. And then once you've 
sifted out the triggers, the next move is to, I guess, be okay with them, kind of come to peace with the troublesome parts of the past, or... Well, that's usually done in therapy as, as uh, the recapitulation process, you know, which right. is to actually re reawaken your true self after realizing that your self has been modified by, you know, being molested as a child, for example, or, uh, uh, you know, being abandoned as a child or, you know, having a really bad car accident that has damaged you in some way, you know, and, and that we, we take all those things naturally very personally and that changes our sense of personhood. So we really have to kind of like realize, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of moving with an emotional and instinctual limp and I need to do the qigong or the rehab, you know, to go back and, and heal those wounds. And that, that can take a couple of years for some people. Other people, you know, it's just a few weeks of really learning to accept ourselves and what's happened. So the process is a little different depending on, of course, the situation and, and, and on the person. So, but. Yep. If there was one simple answer for everyone, we would just say that answer and <laughs> signing off. Have a great day. <laughs> yeah, it's never that simple. No. Uh, don't worry, be happy. You know, Bob Marley, he tried it. I don't know. It's not sticking. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the the thing that most of us, I think, really need to do uh, when we realize we're caught up in this and we're caught up in being triggered, and this is pretty fascinating from a, a technical or clinical point of view, when people get triggered, they become what we call flooded. And that means flooded with adrenaline and catecholamines and cortisol and a lot of different hormones that have to do with stress. So most of us, when we're flooded, it takes actually 20 minutes, usually lying horizontal, breathing and staying calm for us to go back to a neutral kind of biochemistry. So like, like just laying down for having a nap kind of thing would be the best answer if you're... Well, I mean, you might want to have a nap, but if you're flooded with adrenaline, it's kind of hard to nap. Most people are wanting to pace and they're wanting to, I don't know, maybe angry text their, their friend or their, their lover or something. The trick with recognizing you're flooded is to realize that you're now missing about 25% of your brain. Oh, wow. Because you're running on instinctual hormones. I actually learned this term flooded uh, in a book on uh, how to keep your marriage together three months after I got divorced, which was kind of funny. But this clinician, uh, the, the author of this book, whose name I, I don't recall at the moment, uh, he had described that as step one when you come home from work or step one if you have an argument is, I'm flooded. I think the best thing we could both do is go into a different room lie down, calm down, make sure that we're really conscious of what we're feeling and where we're coming from and what we really want and don't want to say to each other. And then maybe come down, sit down, hold hands and, and make sure that we're aware that losing awareness is, you know, five seconds of being unconscious away. So when it comes to emotional intelligence, especially if you're triggered, especially if you have trauma, especially if it's, you know, you know, high risk, like, you know, your intimate relationship, if you're flooded, you're you're not as smart as you might think you are. <laughs> and that's true for everyone. So take that 20 minutes. And it can take for some people who've really been traumatized, who've really been triggered, who feel completely uh, emotionally harmed or abandoned. Uh, what they often have to do is actually spend a couple of days just getting back to who they really want to be and who they really are. So... 
Wow. I mean, that's that's tough. Yeah, it's cool that you can communicate uh, with people like that, and it's, it would be really nice to have that type of relationship where you consistently are talking that way and have that awareness, at least to recognize, hey, before we say something we don't mean to say, <laughs> let's let's take a minute, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what do you so, do, Alex? Like, can you think of the last time you got so flooded and charged up and reactive in, in your life that you really realized you weren't conscious? Well, yeah, that, that, that'll happen a few times. I mean... What, what do you do when that happens? I guess... Yeah, try not to say anything to anybody. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go... Just go be somewhere until you... Yeah, until you calm down a bit and then... And then come and uh, talk about whatever it is with that person in a more constructive way. Yeah. The and this is, is the, constructive. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the first so. real step of emotional intelligence and it, of being emotionally intelligent. And it's actually kind of hard because you have to recognize yeah. I, I have to change where I'm coming from to be good at, um, yeah, just communicating. Yeah, it's... But that even even being able to take that step actually was a pretty life changing skill. I, you know, I think maybe one of the first examples actually was when I was a pizza delivery guy, and I think I was late or something for some orders. I, I kind of made a mistake, and the boss he was he was pretty mad, but he was aware that he was mad. So he's like, you know what? <laughs> I could see it. <laughs> he said, you know what? I'm not going to have this conversation with you right now. I'm not in a good headspace. I'm pretty upset. So we're going to talk about this later, and. It was almost worse because I had to like look forward to, you know, I had to like wait to find out what was going to happen there. So, so it was really amazing that boss had that skill. But why is it so hard for some people? Well, that that's really the, the probably the most important question because, you know, here we are having this conversation, and you know, our listeners are listening or watching this conversation and going like, yeah, this uh, emotional intelligence thing sounds great. You know, sign me up. Um, and that's still the point of the podcast, but I really want to bring up why this is so challenging for some people. And it's going to be a little bit technical um, because we have to learn a bit of technology, like a bit of technical terms. Um, let's say that every human being has a default setting for emotional adaptability. Right, we can all take so much from our boss when we're delivering pizza, or we can take so much from the people we're delivering the pizza to, or the traffic when we're trying to get the pizza there on time. Whatever it is, we all have that adaptability kind of default setting for for stress, for pressure, for time, for money, and for our inner emotional world. Now, that default setting is actually based on something called implicit memory. Right. And your implicit memory is the belief you have about how you fit into the world and who you are and who you're not based on, you know, how your childhood went. So if you grew up in a really, really solid home, everyone had dinners together all of the time, everyone talked all of the time. If anything happened when you were a kid, you came right home and told your parents and they, they did their best to help you out. And, you know, your whole life, you just knew people were there for you. And having that... Uh, sense of being uh, resourceful and adaptable, your default setting or your implicit memory is I'm an adaptable person. And if I get into trouble, I can go to the people I trust and they will help me work this out, which makes us more courageous. It makes us a lot more confident in some ways. 
Now imagine that you're a person who grew up in a home where your parents may have been addicted, they may have been unavailable, they may not even have been there. Or maybe they were there in a way you would have rather they weren't there at all. So, I mean, I'm covering a lot of possibilities here. But that implicit memory is, I don't deserve a normal life. I don't deserve to be met with authenticity. I don't deserve to have people around me that are trustworthy. So I don't really know how to trust people. So I don't really know how to trust me. So my implicit memory is more like kind of walking a tightrope of, you know, at some point it's just going to be life and death. Or at some point it's going to be just struggling to hang on. Or I'm always on the verge of falling over or falling off of this thing. And when you live a life of that... You might try and fake your confidence and a lot of people become bullies or they become very manipulative so that they have this false kind of facade of, of who they are and the kind of confidence they present. But on the inside, they're kind of squirming around with insecurity and maybe even self-loathing. And I'm not saying that with judgment. I'm saying that with, you know, well, I think that was most of my adolescent experience because I grew up in a very abusive home, right? So, you know, we're, we're all living, you know, into the future as a self based on what's happened to ourself in the past. And that implicit memory changes very much that default setting, you know, and it drives a lot more people towards uh, a life of addiction or a life of control. You know, and, and, and that, that's, you know, I think that's happening to all of us a little bit nowadays, but um, I guess in Taoist thought, you know, we... we we have this understanding in Taoism that, you know, there is a birthright to human consciousness and human culture and human connection. And it is possible to return to that if you're willing to do, you know, the work. Okay. And I think it's worth it to do whatever we can do to just be a little more authentic and definitely take a look at where we're coming from. And hopefully we can resolve some of those challenging you know, places that we come from in our past today so that we can move forward as just a happy person <laughs> and getting along with people and having a good time. That would be nice. Well, it's really exciting to know that there is a solution out there in the form of Taoism. And how exactly do we come from uh, the framework of Taoism to approach some of these challenges? Uh, well, for today, we're going to dive in a lot into Chinese medicine, but um, from a Taoist point of view, there's a couple of uh, principles or kind of core approaches that I think um, are kind of just kind of common sense. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we, we talk about this idea of the threefold path or San Tao. And there's like the things that are happening on an animal instinctual level. There's things that are happening on a spiritual kind of cosmic level. But one of the most challenging aspects of Taoism we call Ren Tao, the Tao of beings, is the study, the uh, the focus, the time, the meditation, uh, the growth, and all of the work that it's going to take to become well, into what we would call right relationship. And we've talked about that a bit in like episodes when we talked about uh, walking in a good way. We talked about Tao and the and Saran and Wu Wei, you know, the kind of pillar principles from the Tao Te Ching, the, that main book from uh, early Taoist writing. So we, we have a sense of, you know, what right relationship is kind of about in a way. But the question is, how can we actually make that uh, a part of our committed practice? Because, you know, it's fun to go and do Qigong in the park. It's fun to go and practice martial arts. It's really uh, challenging, but predictably enriching to practice meditation in silence. Uh, 
Um, it's a completely internal universe if you get into Nagong and internal alchemy. But, you know, day to day, most of the real work is just showing up and trying to, I guess, not be a jerk or whatever the opposite of an impatience re and reactive person would be. So when we think of this uh, quality of Taoist practice, the Rendao, the way of beings, um, there's sort of two qualities to it. One is a teaching and it's a core aspect of Taoism called Shen Ming Zhidao. And that is the way of spiritual luminosity or how to actually move through life radiating and being authentically a very present wholehearted person who is generous and available and, and uh, willing to communicate in a meaningful way with every person you meet. You know, it could be some crazy person on the subway. It could be some stranger in a back alley if you decide to walk around, you know, down a back alley in a big city for some reason or whatever. But it's having a kind of a default setting that isn't the default setting your childhood gave you. It's the default setting of the most meaningful thing I can do is actually be emotionally, consciously, and spiritually uh, radiant or luminous. And that's a funny word for actually just being um, kind of like a, a candle or a light bulb and just keeping the light on all the time. And if you can't keep that light on, that sense of being uh, spiritually present in, in the way you relate to people, then try not to be a jerk. <laughs> but the idea is to do the work personally, you know, through a two or three year process of kind of inner cultivation on just the level of mind, body, and self-awareness to get to that Shen Ming, that spiritual luminous place that, you know, everybody can can recognize what it's like to meet someone who's a bit awake. And I don't mean woke like, you know, fad, hip culture woke. I mean, as a person who's done the work and has the real credibility of, of patience and wisdom and, and, and truth, and that you can walk around, you know, being in that all of the time. Now that, that takes some years. Uh, and it's, uh, there's a lot of teachings and practice in, in that, uh, uh, one of the eight branches of Taoist practice. Another really powerful aspect of this uh, we call um, An Shen which means to calm your spirit and secure your essence. It's an awareness that every time you lose your cool and get really aggressive or, or really emotional in, in ways that are kind of manipulative, you're just using up your vitality and using up your, if you were a candle, you know, you're using up your wax or your jing and just being unconscious. You know, so when we think of that on shun, that calming your spirit, it doesn't mean you always walk around, you know, like someone tranquilized using, hello, how are you? Like maybe you're really, you know, high and really stoned all the time or something. The idea isn't to be fake calm. It's to actually be aware of what, you know, the entire range of feeling calm and feeling still um, can actually be, you know, and be like. Because that's the entry point into being self-aware. Just not being reactive and, and, you know, just running with whatever your gut wants to do. You know, you're going to learn a lot from doing that, but you're also going to learn a lot from calming down and, and choosing not to be flooded. So that you can actually walk into a challenging situation with your boss, you know, wherever you work, and just be the one who's present to that person instead of trying to control the outcome. Right? So there's, there's a lot of uh, practical tools, you know, just in the general sense of be more luminous and radiant as your candle. Try not to burn up your wax being unconscious so that you can be 
kind of like a dimmer switch, you know, aware of the kind of radiance and the flame and the consciousness you bring into the situations you are. And that's often a lot more about stillness than it is about, you know, any particular thing that you could manufacture. Because then again, if you're manufacturing it, you're kind of manipulating the situation and trying to control the outcome. So not really conscious, not really present. It's a, it's a fine line, but consciousness always is. <laughs> and I was just thinking, actually, like, it seems to be the case that for people who are generally on edge or kind of reactive, they seem to, well, get gray hairs a little sooner <laughs> or show a couple more wrinkles before their time maybe they should. Um, so I... Part of that probably has to do with, I'm guessing, a lack of sleep. Maybe they're not drinking enough water, things like that. But it seems like aging is definitely impacted. Like you said, burning up the wax. If you're not in this place of calm and still, you is it kind of like running your car on the red line, I guess, just just pushing it too much, in a sense, like emotionally? Well, I mean, I, I mean that would be a fairly extreme example, but I have met people in, in my life uh, who are like that, who are just emotionally volatile, they're unconscious, they're reactive, they're impatient, they're controlling, they're manipulative, they're passive-aggressive, they're, um, I think what we would call a hot mess or something like that. And they can't tell because that's their default setting. Maybe they just grew up in a highly emotionally chaotic and controlling environment, and they just decided to light their proverbial hair on fire on an emotional level and just ran with that because it got them through high school or it got them through maybe a, the first few years of their marriage or something, and, and they're just running with that programming. But I, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, in the, in the sense of longevity and, and cultivating, you know, health, being an emotionally ballistic and unaware person is going to age you faster. You know, but, you know, the, the the conversation I want to keep coming back to is we're not here to try and control the outcome of our aging. We're here to try and learn precisely how to actually, like, do this work, how to, like, get started, how to dive in and, and really make some changes. So how would someone get started on that? The first thing that... Uh, I was really asked to focus on when I was being taught about right relationship and uh, Randall, the way of beings, was to notice that right relationship starts with yourself. So if we were to think, you know, if you were to just like randomly, without thinking about this, Alex, think of four words that you think would encourage a f sense of right relationship, what would those four words be? A sense of right relationship. Uh, acceptance. Love, passion, empathy. Nice. Right? So whatever, uh, you know, whatever breadcrumbs that we use, you know, in terms of like those four ideas, that's where we want to start with right relationship is with ourself. Now, this is usually where meditation really begins for people. Because if you're sitting there, you know, or lying there or walking or walking in circles or, you know, standing or whatever you do in your meditation, the thing that you're going to be facing is your internal dialogue and the fact that most of the time your mind is looping. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about conscious cognition and actually the kind of mechanics of looping and, and how that actually works. Because knowing how your brain works is kind of like the the magic trick of actually taking taking it kind of by the reins and, and, and choosing what it's going to do. But for today, we're, today we're going to focus on emotions. So 
if I'm sitting in my meditation, I kind of have a few choices, at least from a Taoist point of view. One quality of Taoism we call Sin Chai, which is uh, heart fasting or mind fasting. So in that practice, you basically just sit there and, and I mean, the easiest way to say it is just shut up. And this is a real quick, funny story. Uh, many years ago, I was working with a, a patient and she was a potter. She made things out of clay. And she had an autoimmune disease because that's my focus in medicine. And those diseases are pretty challenging, especially around stress. And her and I were having this conversation and uh, we knew each other in the community. So I was being a bit playful and I was like, you know, ma'am, uh, well, I didn't say ma'am, I'm just not going to say her name. I said, you know, ma'am, the best thing that you could actually learn to do is shut up. And it was at just the right time in the conversation when it was just the right way to say maybe mindfulness and, and, and less impatience and less intensity and less control would be a good start. And because we knew each other, you know, in, in the community, it was not unprofessional for me to say that because I was being playful and the conversation kind of led into that kind of behavior. Just in case people are wondering, wow, this, this doctor's an asshole. He just yells at his patients and tells them to shut up. <laughs> uh, that's never happened. But the funny part of this story is about two weeks later, I got home <clears throat> and she had left a box on my porch um and i opened the box and there was a tea set handmade beautiful oriental tea set uh you know with all these little cups and the cups had little stencils on them that said shut up <laughs> because it became her thing she made herself a cup because she's a potter and every morning she would get up and put her tea because she couldn't have coffee anymore into her little cup that said shut up and she just sat there and she didn't know very much about meditation. She just knew that she just had to stop talking to herself about all the stuff that she was looping about. And after a few days, her symptoms started to get better. So a couple of days later, she went into her studio and made me a teapot with some cups that said shut up. And I'm not making this up, Alex. Those teapots and cups were for sale in every store in this city for years. Everybody I, got I, it. I kind of want one of those now, actually. Yeah, is yeah. That, is that still for sale? <laughs> Everybody who got it got it. Like they just wanted to like wow. look at their cup of tea and be like, "Shh, just shh." I can't. I can't make more noise in my head. That's going to help the noise in my head. <laughs> so this is this quality wow. we call sinchai to to fast the mind by just shh, just. And, and often when it, if I'm having a really busy time in, in my mind and, and I'm choosing to meditate, I'll actually look over my left shoulder and look at my, the part of my mind as, you know, I, I think of it and just say, I'll be back in about 45 minutes. Okay. All right then. And then I go into my practice and because I've told that part of myself, shh, I'll be back in 45 minutes. It's so much easier to stay there just because I've kind of given myself permission. Okay. There's another quality of Taoist meditative practice we call Wang, and that basically means sitting and forgetting. Okay. So, so we just sit work? there. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was just like, how does that work then? <laughs> the easiest image I give people is just imagine you're sitting, you know, on a raft in a river or maybe on a dock or, you know, maybe, you know, something in a river. And every time your thoughts come up, you just sit them in, in, in like on a leaf on the river and you just watch it float away. Because if you can sit and forget and let everything go back into the past, then you don't have to try and navigate your future with thought. So we just sit and consciously forget and let go. Thoughts come up. You say, hi, thought. Nice to meet you. Oh, you're about this. Okay. I'm just going to put you into this river and see you float away. 
So we sit and forget things as if they're just floating into the past because we're trying to leave the future open. So that's another quality of, of Taoist practice. And, and there's another one we call Bao Yi. Um, and it's kind of a, a quality of conserving and protecting this very qual specific quality of attention and intention. A kind of like uh, protecting that sense of harmonious stillness. You know, which is kind of like saying, I'll be back in 45 minutes. Please go away. Michael is busy right now. Beep, beep, beep. Please leave a message. I'll come back. I'll, I'll answer you later. You know, or however you kind of frame it in, in, the, in the modern world. So when we do that, you know, and we're getting better at kind of getting our thoughts, our words, our stories, our talking mind to go away. Or not go away, but just give us some time. Then the emotional experience starts to actually show up. And you might find yourself smiling with bliss or on the ground weeping with, you know, complete sadness or clenching your teeth in resentment about all of the things that have, you know, stopped you from, you know, being who you want to be. Because meditation is in a way a kind of purification into the eye of the hurricane of your life. And your emotional life is the unconscious and the conscious and the instinctual and the intuitive and the existential thing that produces almost every one of your thoughts. Actually, that's interesting you mentioned that because it is seemingly randomly, like if you're doing maybe a sitting meditation, whichever method, I guess, is easiest to find stillness. And randomly, yeah, you, you might just start laughing or just feel uh, joy or, yeah, kind of feel sad. <laughs> it's weird. They, they just come up on their own, so... And it, it does it does seem to have to do with the the thoughts of where they come from sort of flash by and you're not holding on to them, right? You just go, Oh, okay. And then you wait. <laughs> and then something else. And oh, cool. All right, great. Yeah, there goes that too. And, uh, I think of yeah, the Go ahead. Oh, it's it's just a really purifying process. Afterwards you definitely feel more clear minded. It's easier to focus and harder to get stressed out, I've noticed. So, Yeah. In the teaching, we talked about the Xingming Shuangshu, which is kind of a core teaching in Taoism. The character Shu is to study, but it's actually the picture of someone swimming across a river holding onto a sacred teaching or a scroll. So, you know, sometimes when we're in our meditation practice, we might be focused on, if I can do a good job, I'll get across this river. But keep in mind that... You're on the river and the weather is not up to you. You know, so as much as you might want to focus on your meditation to cross this river and kind of transcend karma and mundane conditioning and become an authentic human being, which is, you know, kind of the underlying theme to Taoist practice, going across that river has to include some chaotic storms, right? So that, that's where we kind of invite the emotions to come up. And I'll actually do that sometimes. It's, it's almost the same thing. I look over my left shoulder and say, okay, thinking mind, I'll be back in 25, 35, 45 minutes, maybe four hours if I'm going to go really deep into my Gong. And then I might look over my right shoulder and say, okay, whatever needs to be met and held in authentic presence and compassion, you know, those words that you used, I'm ready and I'm here. So I'm going to sit into my practice and I'm going to invite the storm and bring my awareness deeply into my emotional state and my embodied state, my somatic, you know, experience. And then if it's going to come, I'm like, please, let's, let's go into this. Let's, let's become whole. 
uh, through the attrition of what's broken, you know, by meeting it in, in presence and patience and compassion and loving kindness and, you know, the things that, you know, are the reasons why we practice in a way. It helps a lot. And when those storms come up in life, uh, the the natural response, the default response then is just, oh, we, all right, here comes this. No problem. We'll just, <laughs> all right, then we'll just look at the solutions or just look at the constructive parts instead of looking at potential negative outcomes, instead of thinking about what might be. It's just, all right, we're here now. Here's this. What do we do with this? How do we how do we play with this? Yeah, I'm reminded of a song that we often sing in certain kinds of ceremony, uh, and the song is called "All Is Welcome Here." Okay, that sounds yeah. good. How does that go? Well, I'm not going to sing a song on that podcast. <laughs> if that's okay, but <laughs> maybe someday. But um, yeah, I mean that that's the invitation to these kind of ceremonies where you know we're taking things like ayahuasca and you know, medicines that are going to break apart all the control mechanisms that you have very carefully, but very determinedly. And you have to welcome, you know, everything that's going to arise from your past. I mean, a lot of people, when they take these kinds of medicines, they, um, they, they remember things that happened to them that they had, you know, consciously made uh, subconscious or that they, they kind of forgotten on an instinctual level. And a lot of people, it isn't until you're in your 30s and 40s that you're, in a way, your your character, your uh, spiritual confidence maybe is deep enough and strong enough to actually remember the things that have happened that have really hurt you. So in a way, we have to say, I feel strong, I feel present, I feel centered, all is welcome. I invite you to come into my meditation and teach me about who I really am and what I really need to, to learn and feel to grow and become a whole being. Great. That's definitely the right step to take. Perspective is key, right? So, yeah, you're only going to get to the truth by experiencing the truth. It's like having tools. It's like having tools to deal with life's challenges and curveballs and unexpected turns. But being centered when life shakes you around, hey, no problem. Like you have said in in, in the Qigong teacher training program, to be like kelp, just dancing with the current of the ocean around you, right? So. Mm-hmm. A bit of flexibility there. Yep. So this episode is called Emotional Intelligence and Traditional Chinese Medicine. How does that really tie in with all of this a little more in the sense of maybe can we start with the Chinese medicine and just look at that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, the word emotion kind of means uh, energy and motion or, you know, feelings that are very dynamic, you know, kind of like the weather. So, you know, from a pure Chinese medicine point of view, we want energy to flow. We want our jing or the wax of our candle to be abundant. We, uh, we, uh, we want our flame to be bright, our shun, our spirit to be bright, but not manic. And, you know, I think I mentioned someone with their hair on fire, <laughs> you know, in the, in the sense of people who are like really big in their energy. Because we want people to live a long time and find some kind of balance. So when we look at a person in, you know, in that way, who's going through a lot of emotion, we often just start with jing, qi, and shen, you know, and then when we get into, you know, maybe certain organs might be out of a balance or the yin yang, you know, aspects of certain organs might be specifically injured in some way. So that gets really specific in the sense of treating a pattern, you know, of their physical, physiological body as well as their emotional experience. The Chinese medicine always starts with how are things moving? Are they moving too fast, too slow? Are they stuck? And why? 
you know, because there's always an underlying, you know, Im imbalance that's causing things to present, um, you know, in some kind of chaotic or, or uh, destructive way. And I've noticed that Chinese medicine is really good at looking, yeah, like the root cause and, and kind of, yeah, almost, I don't want to use the word mechanical, but how things sort of fit and work together, but in, yeah, not mechanical, but it's like organic. It's more like a garden than a machine, right? Well, it's, it's based entirely on imitating nature and using our understanding yeah. of nature as the mechanics or as the, the causal kind of moving parts that make a, help us make uh, clinical decisions for people. And then you come into a nurture nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's um, a great, great breakdown on the Chinese medicine part. But how, does the, how do the five elements now tie in with this? Well, that's the classic thing with uh, Chinese medicine and our emotional well-being. So I think we've probably all seen, if we're listening to a Taoist podcast, the five-element chart that looks like a five-pointed star, kind of like uh, I think it's got something to do with witchcraft or something like that uh, in terms of European culture. And that helps us understand the, the five elements or, or we call the five phases of, of life or of transformation or, or of energy. The kind of present understanding that you're going to find in most Chinese medicine books is that, you know, in each of those five elements, we have a certain org organ system, pairs of organ systems, and whether or not those organ systems are healthy can determine whether or not we're going to be more prone to a certain emotion. Say, for example, if your kidneys are out of balance, then you're more prone to certain kinds of fear or dread or qualities of anxiety. Now, let's just be clear that your kidneys relate to your kidneys. They relate to your entire endocrine or hormonal system, certain parts of your uh, your neurotransmitter system uh, um, in some pretty tangible ways in the sense of what we know about in the Western world. So... When we think about uh, fear and, you know, your kidneys, you're probably talking a little bit more about your adrenals and the sense of kind of chemistry and, and how the body works. And the idea is that if your kidneys are weak, you're more prone to feeling afraid. Or if your adrenals are way out of whack, you're more prone to feeling complete um, anxiety around more stress because you're already burning out with stress, you know, and any more stress is going to kind of break you in a way. You know, and that's sort of the, the metaphor. But it also kind of goes the other way, that if you're in a state of constant anxiety and fear, eventually that's going to burn out or damage your kidneys or your adrenals and, and all of that, you know, part of your physiology. Chinese medicine is very, very wise in keeping things very simple, uh, especially when you're communicating with patients or you're writing an article for a magazine or you're giving people a kind of a picture to look at that helps us simplify and understand and find a practical way to, to respond to what's happening in our life. But Chinese medicine is often, if not always, way, way, way deeper, many levels deeper than what you're going to see in a magazine or a popular book, because that's just how it works. So we're going to get into a much more in-depth understanding of, of the emotions uh, than just, you know, anger makes your uh, liver sick, or if you have a you know sick liver, you're going to be more prone to anger and frustration. Those may be true, but they're also very simplified. And also, having said that, <clears throat> that five-pointed star 
kind of diagram of understanding the five elements is very simplified. And it's very kind of focused on the arrows and the interactions and the causes and effects, which is where the Western mind wants to live, is where cause and effect and control and outcome are the point. When you look at that chart, um, you know, in its er earlier, more original description, you have a big, huge earth in the middle, and that's the element of soil. And around that big, huge earth in the middle, you have five smaller circles, or four smaller circles, one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, and one in the west. And those are the four uh, elements that actually have the most to do with transformation. So when we get into this in a little bit more detail, having a sense that there's parts of us that are big, and there's parts of us, parts of us that are kind of polarizing like north and south, and there's part of us that are really transformational like spring and fall. And they're all happening through the medium of, of the soil or the earth or the mind. Then we can get a much more deep uh, sense of insight from Chinese medicine. Now, you don't need to have those charts in front of you. You don't even really need to you know think about them to get the most out of this episode. But I would always encourage anyone who's sort of familiar and kind of locked into one view of the five elements and the five organs and how they interact and what the emotions mean. Um, it's possible, maybe probable, that you've learned this on a superficial level. And now you're going to have a chance to go much deeper into it. But maybe before we get into that, let's take a little bit of a break, give people a chance to settle into all that. And when they're ready, they can just dive in and uh, there'll be a link below and they can dive into part two. In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below. <laughs> 